Real Cuff Radio is about to begin. Everybody loves a hero. I believe there's a hero in all of us. Well, welcome to Real Cuff Radio. And tonight I'm excited to have not at all only an author of many books and a speaker, but uh, Dr. Winky Prattney, who a lot of people have heard about, but I've never personally even heard his testimony. So I'm excited to hear his testimony tonight, and then he'll bring us up to date on where everything else is going right now in his life. Okay. How you doing tonight, sir? Doing good, Todd. Thank you. So if you want to start, and uh, you don't you don't have to go into depth, but however you want to do, but uh, tell us your testimony. What would you like to know, starting from where? <laughs> well, I, I guess basically, you know, I heard you speak a little bit about how you came to the United States and, uh, you know, how you found Jesus. So that's always a good place to start is... It is good. My my background, I am a, a New Zealander, Kiwi, they call them, and uh, grew up there, was born there. Uh, and so my early years in, uh, have all been in New Zealand. And my ambition in life was to be a scientist, to be a chemist. And I had my first lab when I was seven years old. And by the time I was in high school, I had a better lab than the high school did. And by the time I was in university, I had a better lab than the university did. So it's not CSI or, you know, not uh, those kind of things. But uh, that was kind of my my main ambition in life. My father was a professional athlete, an incredible uh, cyclist, or, you know, a professional uh, cyclist, meaning not motorbikes, but, you know, the kind that you pedal. And he is out of 100 years of professional cycling he is the top cyclist we've ever had and so the first five years the first 25 years was one guy and the second uh 25 years was the next pro and then he beat them and the last 50 years was that and so the museum of transport and technology in new zealand has uh a a long-term exhibit of his. He's not stuffed in there, put in like a, a, a racing horse or something, but it's his story. So he's kind of legendary in, in New Zealand. My mother was an entrepreneur and uh, did some amazing things. My little sister is a year younger than me, became a professional dancer at three. She was a professional hula dancer and toured in these major Easter shows and Christmas things uh, dancing out of a clamshell like a little Shirley Temple. and So that was our roots. Um, I am part Maori, which is our native peoples in New Zealand. My dad was uh, half-caste and I'm quarter-caste Maori. So we had a really interesting life, but no real uh, religious roots. My mother came from a very long, very large uh, family, and so maybe there were tw- 10 or 12 different sort of brothers and sisters in that family. But we grew up with very little Christian things. Because my dad was a professional athlete, my mother was a nurse, 
for the time during the war, there was very little religious um, connections there. They were married in an Anglican church. Uh, I was sent to Sunday school a couple of times when I was little, but we really, we weren't uh, people with sort of some beef against God. We, we just didn't think much about religious things, didn't go to church. So the heart of what happened in our family, uh, my mother had an amazing confrontation with God. It's, it's a little bit, you, if you've seen the movie Titanic, when the girl is uh, trying to kill herself, that happened to my mother because she always wanted to be a professional singer and when she married dad, her life got sort of caught up in his and she never got a chance to do that. And so one day when I was about 11, my sister was about 10, uh, we woke up and my mother was gone. She just wasn't there anymore. She didn't leave a note. She had just said at some time, a little bit before, I can't really take this. And what had actually happened, she had uh, joined with my with her younger sister and run away to Australia to stay there for the rest of her life, not to ever come back and get involved in this, which was great for her, but we didn't know what happened to her, so the months went past. We never knew. And uh, during that time, she got something. It may have been TB. She started coughing blood. She ran out of money, ran out of friends, but uh, because she had a... Uh, already a ticket back when you leave New Zealand you always have to get a ticket to come back so she just she thought well I've got nothing to do I have to go back home but she didn't want to come back to our home anymore so on the road on the uh, boat this wasn't planes and stuff in that times on the boat coming back she decided she'd just quietly slip over the, into the water and drown and that nobody would know what happened to her and they cleaned out the cabin, just found her clothes and her bags and stuff, and that she was gone. So there, about two in the morning, looking over an empty deck there, nobody out in the deck, looking down into the waters. She, uh, she thought, I'll just quickly step up on the side and just slide into the water. And a man touched her on the shoulder, and it shocked her because... There wasn't anybody there on the deck, and and he said, "Don't do it." And then she her legs went like jello, and she couldn't climb. She just sort of slumped over the over that uh, side rail and didn't jump. And then very shortly after that, people started coming on deck, and she saw and the and the horizons and the glow of lights, and it was Auckland City. She knew she couldn't do it anymore. So when she came back, she didn't go to see us, but we had one brother in her, uh, her family who was religious. He was actually an exclusive brethren, was an intensely, deeply religious man, but he was the only one she knew, and he had just built a new house, which he had moved into, Yet it had no furniture, it had no curtain, you know, no, um, had doors and windows and curtains and stuff, but nothing else. And she, she went to see a doctor and he took an x-ray of her and found these only one and a half lungs. And so he 
decided, um, he said, come back tomorrow, we'll give you some more x-rays, but it looks like TB. And so staying there in my uncle's house, he'd taken a mattress, put it on the floor, covered it with plastic in case it really was tuberculosis. And lying there on the ground about two, two in the morning in this home, it's an empty house, uh, the doors were closed, the windows closed, and the curtains pulled. She, she cried out to God. She kind of cursed God. She said, if you are real, why did, and why did we have so many problems in our family? And she said, I tried to kill myself on the boat, and somebody stopped me. So if you're so powerful and you, you are real, then why don't you take my life? Why don't you come in here right now and kill me? Why don't you just take my life? And then he came. And she said, um, the door didn't open, no windows open. He just came. And she was lying there on this mattress on the floor. He said he stood about just a foot or two away from her as he's there on the floor. And he said two words, and the two words changed her life. And she never told anybody for the rest of her life what those two words were. And she said, just as he came, he left. Then, and the, she said, I fell into the deepest sleep I've ever had in my whole life. And then in the morning, she woke up and she felt wonderful. There was no coughing. And, and, and so she pulled aside the curtains and she looked out and she said, I saw for the very first time in my life that the sky was blue and the grass was green and there was music and there was birds singing. And she said when she opened the window and took a breath, it all it went all the way down with no coughing, no blood. So she went back as she was supposed to, to the doctor who had taken the x-rays the day before, and he took another one, and then he came back and he took another one, and he took another one, and he took three more, and he thought he was going to kill her with radiation poisoning, and he finally showed, he brought in two other doctors, he said, I don't understand this, but I think my original diagnosis is wrong, Somehow the bottom part of your lung had got uh, sort of somehow connected or stuck to the top half of the lung. It was creating the bleeding. But now it seems to have come unstuck and it doesn't seem because there were two perfect lungs. So she didn't, uh, she didn't know what to do. But uh, she suddenly arrived back. She came back to our home. Dad was angry, where have you been and stuff, but she wouldn't argue with him. She just, she got this old black book. We didn't know it was a Bible, and she just read it like a love story. She had already started a, a lending library, the first one we had in South Auckland. So she was a reader, wrote a lot of books, but this one was amazing. It was a bit like, to us, it was a little bit like uh, the kind of movie where, uh, where, you, where your mother made may turn into a vegetable or something. You come back and there's somebody who looks like your mother, but she's totally different, and you realize there's something changed in her. Well, this was kind of invasion of the body snatches in reverse. We had a mother that was used to act like a vegetable, and now we had a real mother. She loved us, and something had really changed in her life. And so my introduction to becoming a Christian was an invitation by her to go to a little street mission in Auckland and just um, listen to an old 
pastor there who you wanted to be a sea captain, but like Peter Marshall, uh, a man called Peter, and he he would spend all night Saturday night praying over the city of Auckland on this tree on this uh, sort of a small volcanic cone that overlooks the whole of Auckland called One Tree Hill, and he'd spend all night there on that grass just praying over the city, and then he had about four or five meetings in this little street mission church, and my father and I, uh, one night there, gave our lives to Jesus together. So I got a, not only did I have a new mother, I had a new father, and so our family was totally altered, and this when, uh, this uh, all happened when I was 16, I was in high school, um, following my career thing, and I pulled in university entrance um, two of the top marks in for two years running on chemistry, so I was well ahead with what I wanted to do, but that one simple surrender to God changed everything. So gave my life wholly over to the Lord, and then I realized I'd been to high school since I was 13, actually ended when I was 12, and here I was, I was 16, uh, four whole years there, and there were about a thousand kids in our high school, and I realized I never met a Christian in the high school, nobody ever, um, you know, rode to school in a fish-shaped bicycle, I don't think some of the kids in our school ate fish, it was pretty pagan school, but I'd never met one uh, person who was a Christian in, in that school. And I realized this was the last three months, got saved, uh, the last three months of high school, and that was the year of university entrance was over, and it was the scholarship year, you go from there to university. And I realized I have been here this whole time, I've never known Christ, and there's a bunch of kids here who have never met him either. So when I uh, got my scholarship at the end of that year, I asked the teachers if I could come back for another year. And there was no rule that said you had to leave when you graduate. Sometimes in the U.S., people will uh, have a hold back. They'll hold back somebody who's really good at football or basketball or something so that they can be involved um, in the school with another year. But I became a Holy Ghost holdback, so I stayed back in the school. I was joined by one friend who I'd met in Youth for Christ, work I'd started to get involved with. And so the two of us looked out. We started a little outreach in our school. And at the end of the school, we'd seen about a tenth of the school give their lives to the Lord. So that's kind of my, my background, my career. I never became a professional chemist. Uh, you can make a lot of money if you're a chemist these days. But I never, because of my parents, I never smoked, drank, did drugs, uh, never had a stable full of prostitutes. I just had a very boring, ordinary life. And but when I met the Lord, everything changed. So came to the U.S., uh, in the early, some of those early years, uh, mid-1960s, I uh, was involved in Youth for Christ for a while. I became a, a director of Youth for Christ in Auckland. 
for just a couple of years. And then uh, my major visit to the United States, I made a couple of visits as part of Youth for Christ, which is a very strange situation. But those of you who are listening who may know about YFC, YFC began, uh, Billy Graham was their first evangelist, a man called Tory Johnson. And Billy's best friend, who later became an atheist, a very sad thing during the war years. And uh, that began in the late 1940s. But at the same time, in New Zealand, with exactly the same name and the same idea, uh, another work began, which was called Youth for Christ Too, without either of those two YFCs knowing of the other one's existence for almost three years. And when they discovered, when the American YFC had been running for quite a while, discovered there was another work called YFC, uh, it was amazing to them, but they began to swap ideas and stuff, so YFC directors would come to New Zealand and help teach some of the young uh, directors in, in New Zealand and vice versa. We sent people across to the U.S. to visit different places and learn things. So I came across with the YFC team. All that was part of my YFC years. And then uh, I lost my place in YFC because I had an experience with God. It's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And uh, the particular leadership of the country at that time had taken a strong stand against anything that looked supernatural. <laughs> so I lost an entire future there. Then I got a call from a lady who is very well known in New Zealand, still alive in the U.S. today. Her name is Joy Dawson, and Joy was an incredible intercessor, uh, a woman of real faith and love for God. And I got a call from her. She didn't know about this, anything to do with that. She just called me, and she said, a man has come to our home for a week and I felt in the Lord it would be good if you meet this man. So do you have any free time? So I'm looking at my calendar, which is now empty for the rest of my life. And I said, well, yeah, I do have some free time. So I went over to visit Jim and Joy Dawson, Hillsborough, where their home was. And there was a man there who was visiting from the U.S., and he wasn't from YFC. He was another worker. And I, looked, and I met this amazing man called Lauren Cunningham who got to put in this hard work and he called it Youth of the Mission. So I spent the whole day from 10 o'clock in the morning till 6 that afternoon in Joy, Joy's home. She slid some food under the door and when it came out empty she knew we were still alive. Near the end of that day uh, talking to this amazing man who had had a vision of waves breaking across the shore of a, of a nation. And as he looked, the waves became people, thousands of young people. And I had been working with Youth for Christ for, for those years, and I realized this is what I've always wanted to see, something international happening that could involve the young, uh, not wait till they get to be 40 or 50 and professional missionaries, but could start as young people and, and see these amazing things happen. So um, at the end of that day, I asked Lauren, what, what are you using to train these young people? And one of the things 
that was my other great love in uh, when I was in, growing up was the chemistry was the science side of it. So the the five degrees that I have that are all put down into one, the two of them, the first one would be the sciences. So for me, it would be chemistry, some astrophysics, and then study of the human body, which is another amazing series, like medical sciences. Then under the arts, my great uh, two loves there were music and movies because my mother, I mentioned she was an entrepreneur, the local movie theater in our hometown of Manurewa, which was only about four or five blocks away from where we lived, had a, a movie theater that was getting a bit dilapidated. And they asked Mother, uh, could you help us raise some money? So she put on five major pop concerts in that movie theater, different one each night, five days in a row, jammed the theater out, had lines running on the block of major pop stars in New Zealand, not only raised enough money for them to fix up that uh, theater, maybe build another one too, but they gave us lifetime passes to the movies. So my dad and I, at 10 o'clock Saturday morning, went down up you know, to our movie theater and I watched movies all day. At 10 o'clock, we were just starting to watch the last one running for the day. So... I have watched, I think I've watched more movies than George Lucas had, at least when he was my age. So movies and then music, I had a band for two and a half years in high school when I got saved. I left the band, but I've been involved with musicians, singers, some of you know Barry McGuire. He got saved as part of outreach we did. Keith Green, you know of. Um, there are many different friends I've met over the years second chapter Pat Boone's uh, and Cliff Richard and also Johnny Cash were all people who got saved about the same time as I did they became my models in the music world so had, that that would be the the if you like the arts for me and then the next one would be communications so my um, work in electronics and different things like that uh, helped me in terms of some of the audio and the various technical ways that people communicate. And then history, we've got a serious revival library here in the U.S. There's at least 12,000 books and things in it, another 5,000 or so in, the, in New Zealand, uh, so history became a, a core area for me. And then the last one was youth culture. So this is my seventh generation of teenagers that I've been working with since that time in 1960. When Lauren finished talking, I asked him, what are you going to be using to train these kids? Because I'd done a book, Youth for Christ's Time. It's called Doorways to Discipleship, a simple little book but I did it for the kind of thing you would give a brand new Christian who just got saved. And I'd been working on a book those years, early years, uh, and nobody had ever seen this, but I, that was all the thing I had after leaving the ministry I'd been part of for so many years and enjoyed it and loved it. But I no longer had a, a way to give that out, except to talk to the kids that I'd seen 
saved. So I asked Laurent, what are you going to be using to help train these kids? And he said, well, that's a problem. I felt we needed some kind of training material, but I haven't had a chance to put anything together. And I said, well, I've got a book, and out of this paper bag that I carried all the bits and pieces of this thing I've been working on, uh, I pulled it out and I showed it. I said, I gave it to Lauren. And it was held together by one of those little brads that was sort of punched, hole punched and held together. So he said, what do you call this? And I said, I call it Youth of Flame. And he got really quiet and he said, that's the name God gave me for the book. And then he said, if you come to the United States, I'll help you get that book printed. And long story short, my grandfather and a meeting I had in New Zealand, uh, he, he gave his life to the Lord. And uh, he gave me the money to get on the ship. So a bit like Peter Marshall in his early days, I got on that long two-week you know, two, two cruise to the United States and began work on Youth of Flame. And the Jesus movement broke out. Youth of Flame without any advertising, without any single ad or television or radio or even a, uh, in a magazine or anything else. Youth of Flame during the Jesus movement alone sold over 100,000 copies among kids. So it became the first book on discipleship done for young people. And so over the years, that's turned into 16 different books of things and then we've we finished some years ago an amazing thing a, a study bible called the revival study bible it's 2,000 pages about a page for the last 2,000 years and covers what God did uh, in this and not only in this nation but in many many nations across the world so with two other general editors we finished that about a decade ago and and that became a thing and my main ministry in in the United States we make visits every year from my hometown of New Zealand uh, in South Auckland and uh, a lot of my work has been over these years basically with high school and college students so this year I'll be in uh, Houston we'll be working with up to 13 different universities there we have over 17,000 young people who have been through a little thing we call 21CR, 21st Century Reformation. And each one of those kids with have gone through that training. It's about up to 16 hours of what God has done these last 2,000 years. And it's sort of elements of revival. So what happens in this is that we, um, we just uh, gave these materials to these kids each one of them has taught at least three or four others who in turn have taught others. And so we're seeing some of those little awakenings break out in some of these universities. So my, my great love, then I never did get to be a chemist. I still have my lab at home. So, you know, I could show it to you. I'd have to kill you afterwards, of course, because it's secret. And, you know, but other than that, we <laughs> had a marvelous time. Thing. I have been following the Lord now for 54 years, and my wife and my son 
we're the only Prattneys left on earth at the moment. So uh, that's basically my story. Well, let me ask you a question, Dr. Prattney. I want to go back to your mom. You said that um, after her visitation and she opened the curtains up and she saw the blue sky for the first time. Yeah. Now, before that, was she, was she colorblind? Or was no, it, 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 something happens when you get saved. It's like the world changes. Well, because I, I'm hearing this from these Muslims. Every time that they get saved, all of a sudden now they see that the sky's blue and they see, you know. Isn't that funny? It's, it's because uh, there's an old line, uh, heaven above is softer blue, earth beneath is sweeter green, something lives in every hue. Christless eyes have never seen, and that for me it's, it was like there was like a shift. You know, you saw blue, but you didn't see blue. You know, you, you heard birds, but you never heard birds. And then suddenly, right. I think what it is is you, for the first time, you become really alive, and you start to see just how marvelous the world is around you. So it is a real shift, a deep shift, that comes. Um, it's much more than just, you know, an understanding or even more information on a thing. It is a spiritual shift that, that alters your entire perspective about the world. Wow. So, I know that you, uh, you've got a lot going on with, you're going down to, do some stuff with Christ for the nations and yeah, in a couple of days. <laughs> and uh, it, I mean, it sounds like you're very busy. Well, I've been friends with a, a lot of people. You know, when you when you've been saved for like 54 years, you get and you're still alive, then you get to meet a lot of people who who uh, who really love God. And so, one of the things that it's amazing about God's people. I mentioned just two or three of them. I mentioned Lauren Cunningham and Joy Dawson. Um, and then I mentioned some of the musicians. I mentioned Barry McGuire and I mentioned Keith Green. There's something unique about when God changes people. None of them look anything like any of the others. <laughs> That's, it's the weirdest thing. If, if I was to ask you, Todd, what, who would be the people that you know that are alive that, that you most respected as people who know God and really love him? And then just compare them. They don't look like each other. They don't talk like each other. But the wild thing is they all look like Jesus for some reason or other. And I think it's because when he... You know, when we give our lives to him, he really does move in. <laughs> and being an infinite person, it's not strange that we all look like him in some way or another. But it's also not strange that this is so many of them. There are millions, millions and millions and millions of people who if they looked at their old life, they look like just a mess of their life is just looks like anybody else's mess. You meet one drug addict, you've met them all. You meet one, one prostitute who's been damaged. It look, she looks and hurts just like anybody else. But when you meet people who've met Jesus, 
something changes in their life. It's just amazing to me. Well, I mean, you shared quite a bit. I wonder if we should, uh, you know, have you share a little more, or do you want to just pray over the audience, and, and then we can have you come back another time and, and maybe do a little teaching? <laughs> you, you, can, you can take a break on this and then just pick something you want to talk about. You know, I mean. <laughs> Julie, is there anything you'd like to hear? I am. Um... I'm just pinpointing on the the young folks. Yeah. That uh, I find your testimony very interesting because they were just saying today how many young folks have never even stepped foot in a church and don't even know what's going on in there. Yes. Yeah, so true. your testimony goes to show how Jesus is not just in the church building. Yeah, and that's, that's he could touch your right. mom, mm. touch you. And then, I mean, I have never heard of anybody ever saying, let me stay another year in high school so that I can <laughs> minister to the thousand people that don't know Jesus <laughs> just like I didn't know him. Yeah. That's amazing in itself. So why don't you go ahead and pray for the young folks that are going to listen to this, but even the ones that are not going to listen. We'd be glad to agree with you in prayer. The, the one lovely thing I've learned about kids change all the time. You know, um, There is a reason why a lot of youth pastors only last, as youth pastors for at the most about I think the the rule is about 18 months it's because they think that kids will be the same but they're not they seem to change every couple of weeks but they all face the same problems the same battles all of them have battles with hurt and their families sexual morality problems uh, they have problems with with not being able to know who they are, their value, their worth. So looking at them and knowing all these years what it's like to be a teenager, to be like to be a university student, uh, coming to grips for the first time with having to live in a real world where there's sad things and lovely things that all happen, sometimes in the same week. Uh, I've, I've simply learned that couple of key things about God so if you are listening and I'm not uh, I'm not assuming that that these broadcasts or podcasts will be heard by millions of young people but I do believe this whether whatever age you are you need to know three things about the Lord first of all he's not religious he's really not religious at all he does he there is a real religion in the Bible. It's called pure religion and undefiled. To take care of widows and orphans, people who are hurting, that's, that's what a real religion looks like. But if we were to say that following Jesus is a religion, it certainly is. It is a restoration of relationship with the one who made us. It is being restored back to the way we were designed to be. I tell young people that God's laws are not inventions. They're Descriptions of reality from an infinite perspective. 
He tells us what is real, and he shows us what is real. So if you've never met the Lord, it is the most fundamental, mind-blowing, life-changing, and genuinely astonishing thing that can ever happen in your life. I can't even compare the things that God will do. Scripture talks about eye has not seen it, ear has not heard, not even entered into the imagination of man what God has prepared for those that love him. And what I want to make for you to, to understand for sure, becoming a Christian is not joining a particular religious system, nor going to a particular church of various kinds. You can meet God any place, any time in the world. The moment you start giving up uh, the, the biggest problem which we've had all our lives is with selfishness, just simply doing our own thing and assuming that the world should revolve around us is both insane and it is also stupid. So it, the key thing that will change our lives and delivers from stupidity and selfishness and in some forms of insanity when we fondly believe that we'll be able to do all kinds of amazing things that we really haven't even got the equipment to do, whether it's physically, mentally, socially, especially spiritually, we don't know enough about what real looks like to be able to be real ourselves. So it's a funny thing that Jesus said to uh, one of the disciples. He, he was talking to them, and he said, Who do men say that I am? And with the social networks we've got around this today, you can Facebook, you can Twitter, you can do all kinds of stuff. But if we had used those to try and say who we think Jesus is, we'd come up with a lot of different answers. But the disciples said, well, some say you're like John the Baptist, some say you're like one of the, Elijah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus looked at them and they said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, he was the, the fisherman, he was the guy that first loaned Jesus his boat. None of these men really knew God and yet they hung out with Jesus and it shocked them as time went on just how amazing he was and so Peter who remembers what it was like when when they were going someplace and Jesus was asleep on the boat and this incredible storm came and seemed out of nowhere and I've been there I've been on that, that Sea of Galilee type thing so can sudden storms can come out of nowhere and it looked like they were all going to die and Jesus is still asleep and so they rush down and say Jesus wake up you know we're dying we're about to drown and he gets up and with a single statement it's just King James says be you know peace be still the actual word is a word that means be muzzled. It's like taking a crazy dog that's barking at you and it's foaming at the mouth and you snap onto that dog if you can get him in time when his mouth is closed, this sort of muzzle, like a, like a little ice cream cone made out of metal that snaps around so he can't open his mouth anymore. And the word that Jesus uses to that storm is that. It's like quiet, single shout, quiet. And suddenly the storm calms out and stops and the disciples freak out and they go who what kind of person is this that even the wind and the waves obey him so it doesn't matter 
how much you know about Jesus, what really counts is this. Who do men say that I am? Jesus asked the disciples. And Peter, the one who spoke it was, he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, and he uses his full name, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood didn't show you this. I'll just say this. Nobody can show you or teach you or help you know who Christ is by simply information. It doesn't work like that. He said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. And then he said, uh, and, and this is the thing that will change your life. If you... Uh, if the Holy Spirit of God can reveal to you who Christ really is, all you have to do is ask him, who really are you, Jesus? You don't have to know all the stuff. You have to know just this. He really is who he claims to be. If you are willing to say to God, I, I, really, I really like to know if you're real. I need help. I don't know how to get hope in my life or help, but I want to know if you're real, help me. He says this, he says to Peter, I say to you, Simon Barjonas, you are Peter. He gives him a name. In other words, when you know by the Holy Spirit who Christ is and start to begin to know who he is, he will also show you who you are. And the reverse of that is this, if you never know who Jesus is and you don't ever want to know, You'll never know who you are either. It is in the knowing of the one who made you and who loves you and longs to bring you back to where you belong. And it is in that, in the answering of your heart, not just your mind, what you think, but your heart. And you know, some of you will know that your physical heart has a 40,000 neuronal cluster and it is a heart brain. And though this is a new discovery about the last 25 years, it's not your brain that makes the decisions. It is your real heart brain that makes those choices. So when God talks about with all your heart, when he talks about trusting him with all your heart, when he talks about forgiving people with all your heart, it's not just a metaphor. He's really speaking about your heart. Make that choice. The storage systems in your brain, all those other things, are only kind of like huge hard drives, amazing, incredible uh, USBs, systems, all this amazing stuff it can process. But right there in your heart of hearts is where those choices are made that change the world. So if I prayed for you, it's not that you would become more religious. If I prayed for you, it's not that you go to a nice church. That's all helpful and good. What you really need to know is the God who made you. So I'm the only prayer I'd, the prayer I'd ever pray for. I'm a scientist. I'm not a... I'm not a, uh, not a professional religious person at all over all these years. I would simply say, do you really want to know God? Why don't you ask him? If you've got a coin in your pocket of any kind, there's two parts to it, heads and tails. If you flip it, one of them's going to come down on one side or another. It very rarely lands on its edge. So you want to flip that hard, that, that little... Flip that coin like, like your heart needs to make this choice. It goes like this. Turn your tail on your past. Whatever's 
you've done before is if, to finish that, you need to say goodbye to it. And then two, it's time you've got a new head for your life. Give up being your own selfish, stupid, sometimes idiotic things. Surrender your life wholly over to him. I did that, I don't know, 16, 1960, and my life has not been the same. And it is astonishing. You have no idea what he can do with you if you surrender to him. And by the way, he called a nation called Israel to serve him. Only 10% of that nation were Levitical, professional in some way, called to be religious people. But 90% of Israel, the rest of the whole nation, was also called to serve God. And God gives gifts to people, and I've just found 40 of them in the last few years, that are not religious at all, that are gifts by God given to people that are facets of his own nature and character. And God gives these gifts sometimes before you're born. So if you're still in high school around that time about ready to go into college, then know this. About high school, you'll know what you'd really like to do most in life. Maybe many times your school will not even teach you what you really want to know. But what you may not know is that little black book that my mother found called the Bible is loaded with descriptions of what God can do if that gift that he's given you becomes in your own life understood. This is a present from another world. And if, if you will learn not only what your gift is, but who gave you the gift, and go back to the book that he gave and start to ask him, how can I do this best? You will not believe what he can do. Many, many, this is many, many centuries ago, four young men, in a way, trafficked by the most powerful king in human history. His name was Nebuchadnezzar, outside of the kingdom of God and Christ himself. That man captured the young from all over the world, and then he put the ones that he'd chosen most to, didn't want to kill them all. He just wanted them to rule the nation under him. So you wouldn't kill your own kids if you suddenly got conquered by another nation. And there were four boys, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They, they made a choice. It was a simple choice. They could have simply said, and you can read all this in the book of Daniel, it's their story, they made a simple choice. They could have said, what can you do? He co he's conquered the whole world. Uh, and, well, we'll just have to do whatever he says. We'll very quietly love God, the real God. We won't ever tell anybody, but we'll do our best to just sort of, you know, to go along with whatever Babylon wants. We'll do it. Or they could have said, we don't care what you say to us. We know the real God and you don't. So you stick that up your jersey and we're just not going to do it. And then the book of Daniel would have been two verses long. It would say, they died bravely. They didn't do either of those two. They didn't try to cut off what was happening around them. But they said, there's another way to do what the king wants. The king's uh, training program had seven key areas in this. If you want a free book, you can go online just put in the Daniel files because we, 
we wrote this many years ago, and as far as you know, it was the first book ever given away on the net for young people. And the Daniel file simply takes those seven things that the king wanted, physical perfection, mental mastery, spirit, spiritual sensitivity, uh, and then things like um, technological touch and cultural cool, and then also things like political power, all of these key areas. And they asked, how, how does, what does God say in his law about those things, and how could we do it that way? And the simple thing is that coach that was over them, and they said, we have another way to do what, what you're asking. And he said, why should your faces look more haggard than the other use your own age? you do this because of your own religious thing and it's got nothing to do with the king, he's going to look at you and say, why do you look so ugly and awful? And I'll say, well, they've got their own program and he'll kill me and you. They didn't. They said, test us for 10 days and they look better than anybody else in the program. So here is the downshot of it and this is what you, you need to know. At the end of three years, a global test was made from all of the nations where Nebuchadnezzar had conquered and all the young people that were in that training program. And it says this, among, on every single one of those areas, he found them better, not just a bit better, not even a couple of times better, not even five times better. He found them ten times better than anybody else in the realm. So you want to really know who you are and you want to really know what you're supposed to be doing most in life and stop living for yourself. Ask God to show you. If you've got a gift, maybe you've got more than one. Don't expect the culture around you to know all the answers to that. You need to know the one who originally gave you the gift, who actually designed humanity. He's the one who can make your life amazing. It sounds like I need to go read the book. You'll love it. It's free. <laughs> it's called The Daniel Files. <laughs> We've seen some amazing things. M most of the stuff, we, the books and things are done for you, the uh, high school kids or college kids. Well, Dr. Prattney, I, I thank you for being on tonight. And uh, like I said, I, I do look forward to maybe another time for you coming back and, and teaching. Could be, uh, you know. The only problem with teaching is you're on the road all the time. You know that time because you're traveling all the time. The, only, the reason that we are able to do this, too, is because, again, part of the communication is technology. You have a way where we can simply... We just did a streaming thing a couple of nights ago. We, we can do stuff from anywhere in the world and connect with other people. And so people get a chance to see something may, they may have never seen before. So I can go on YouTube and see stuff I've done. Uh, it'd be fun if you if you found what's called Six Mile because we used to do stuff in the worst city in in America, which was called Six Mile. That's just two miles up from Eight Mile, and so I did my Eminem uh, um, imitation, and I think you would like to find it simply called Six Mile. Look that up on YouTube. The making of Six Mile is almost as funny as Six Mile. And uh, if you want to see some of the things that God is doing with, with the young, you'll see a multitude of different 
works that God has started over the years in different nations and countries. This came from Kansas City, where over 5,000 people from all over the world have come together just to learn and to find out what God has been doing in our world right now. So every encouragement for that. Um, I can't possibly hope to keep up with what God's doing in our world. And no matter how rough it seems to be and whether or not you pick the right president in this coming month and whether or not the economy survives September or whether EMPs go right across the nation and take out the global grid that is over the U.S., it's only 200 years old, or whether ISIS attacks this September or next month will not matter a rip to you. Because something will happen in life, it's called joy, J-O-Y, and it's got nothing to do with what's going on around you. And you know the difference between what it is like to be a child of God and what it is like to try and somehow make your own way without the one who made you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Prattney, for the gospel. You're so welcome. <laughs> Good job. Thank you. And I And again... I, I want to show you guys that library. You can have a look at it. You'll love it. It's here on, it's on the YWAM base. Uh, they gave it to me as a place to store these things. Uh, it's not a, not a lending library. You, some people would really like to borrow a 400-year-old book, but it might not survive. <laughs> but it's there. And uh, doctor, you know, it scares people when I say doctor. But when I do talk to doctors, I say I'm a chemist. We used to make the things that you use. We can tell you which ones are not working very well. So just call me Winky. Okay. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Winky. And uh, I guess that's a wrap for tonight. Until next time. Bless you all. (laughs) 